Hello and welcome to the Best Speech Podcast. I am your congested host, Mike Pacione. Wasn't congested when we recorded this, thankfully. I'm the uh, the host of the Best Speech Podcast. This is a podcast where we try to go inside the minds of speakers, and in this case, designers. Yes, designers, as in workshop designers. I know what happens to a lot of people. A lot of people get asked to, to do workshops. I think if you don't know any better, and I certainly have fallen victim to this before, if you don't know any better, your approach to that is basically, okay, well... They were just impressed with my 30 or 45 minute talk. So what if I just made the workshop, what if I just made that two hours or four hours or eight hours of a speech and I just, you know, inserted a few moments where people could talk here and there. That seems like that would work. Well, that's how a lot of people approach workshops. In this episode, David will tell us Yeah, that's not the best way to do things. So David will walk us through a better way of constructing workshops. He'll also talk to us about three different modes of a facilitator. I I love the way he talks about that. So he'll give us his thinking around the different methods or the different modes of a facilitator. One other thing that I love here is he talks about... So just picture yourself trying to lead a discussion. And what most people do is they ask questions that start with why or how. So why would we da-da-da-da-da? David thinks you should start with the word what instead. So listen as he and I discuss that. One last thing, a lot of times when you're brought in for a workshop, especially if it's at a big company, the greatest thing that can happen is you, you give this wonderful workshop and then you get to do it over and over and over again at different departments throughout the company. David's going to give us some advice on how to impress L&D with the outcome of your workshop. So... Definitely take a listen to that. Overall background, David's an independent design strategist with engineering roots. He has a BS in mechanical engineering from the University of Maryland. Like many designers, he just loves building things. And in his case, he lives in Florida now, but when he lived in Portland, he lived in a tiny house on wheels, which he built himself. (laughs) It's just so interesting. Uh, Once upon a time, he was in-house at Capital One. He worked on the design thinking and strategy team. He's designed and facilitated dozens of design thinking workshops for Fortune 500 companies, nonprofit, government. This stuff works. Take a listen to my interview with David Lamus. All right, David Lamus. Now that I've learned after years of knowing you how to pronounce your name, <laughs> I always thought it was Lemus, and then one day you said Lemus. I'm like, what? You know, funny uh, story. Uh, my my own mother says our name wrong. Wait, what? <laughs> What? I, I'm serious. Uh, she pronounces it Lamus. Uh, like my family growing up, we said our name wrong, except my father. And he got so frustrated by it. It wasn't until college that I was like, you know what? I'm really going to actively correct people and have it say correct. Lemus. <laughs> That's super funny, man. Why did your mom and dad disagree on how to say their last name? That just seems like that would have been worked out. I think it became in like an Americanization of it. You know, my father's from oh, El yeah. Salvador. Uh, it was a Lemus. Um, and somehow, I don't know. I don't know how it happened, but that's just how I grew up. Well, that makes sense. That's my last name should be Pacchioni. When I go to Italy, it's Pacchioni, but we've Americanized it as well. So I hear you. I hear you. Uh, David, we have a big assignment for you, my friend. So here's what happens to a lot of speakers. One of two things. Well, there are a lot of things that happen to speakers, but one of two things pertinent to our particular conversation today. So thing number one is I gave this speech 
someone in the audience saw it. They said, oh my gosh, that was so good. Can you come give a workshop for us? That happens to people. Another thing that happens to people, and this happened to someone in my uh, coaching cohort this past year, they realized that they like workshops a lot more than speaking. So speaking from stage is very one way, feels like a lot of pressure on you. Workshops are a nice way of chopping up the amount of time you're, you spend speaking. You get to see transformation in the audience. Workshops are a pretty hot thing, and you, my friend, are the one to guide us through workshops today. So let me start here. Let's let's say I'm the speaker who gets asked to do a workshop. What am I going to do wrong? What would I naturally do wrong? Or, or maybe wrong is the wrong way of saying it, but what would I naturally not know to do? You're going to just talk at the audience, and you haven't designed the whole experience, so you're activating other people's in your audience. I think that's a big difference that I see from people who are great orators, great people who give speeches. They want to impart knowledge. And it's a very different thing of being a facilitator and workshop facilitator. It's no longer about you. It's about the other people. My observation from when I started doing it was my workshop, like what I would call a workshop is basically a speech with a few different times where I just... <laughs> I just add a slide that, that, that asked a question or something, hoping for the audience to come up with something brilliant. I mean, is that what most people try to do? For sure. Oh, it's let me talk in 20 minutes. And they also say, oh, but if, if you have a question, feel free to interrupt me oh, yeah. at any point. That is not, you're putting that job on your audience to interrupt you, mm. where you need to be curating when you're activating a discussion, when you're triggering an activity for them, it's for you to design this experience. So it, it's a really big shift from being a uh, giving a speech to really creating an experience for people. Interesting. Okay, so you keep saying the word experience, experience, experience. What, what should I be doing to create this mythical experience that you're touting? Yeah. So you know, I'll, I'll, in a lot of my work that I do, so my my background's actually in engineering and went eventually into what I call the dark side of design and business strategy uh, because I, I saw so much in gatherings around when gatherings were really incredible, when it really transformed you, whether that was professionally or personally. I said, wow, what are people doing to create this environment? And we've all felt it before, right? Whether it's a social gathering, professionally, like, wow, I, I feel really good. This party yeah. is fun, whatever it might be. And, and I think about things as kind of really three modes of a facilitator that I talk about when we activate. It's like, how do you deliver content really well? How do you engage in activity instructions? And how do you moderate discussions? Those are big three things that I think about. Ooh, let's go deeper. Yeah, take me deeper into each of those three. Yeah. Um, you know, the place I actually like to start is giving great activity instructions. Oh, my gosh. This is the hardest thing. Because I know what the instructions are meant to be. I never rehearse it. Like, I can tell you this from experience. When I did all the Duarte work, I would never rehearse that part because I would be so bogged down in the script. And then there would be an instruction slide. And I'd be like, okay, and then I'll just tell them what to do. But the I'll just tell them what to do. That's really hard. So as, as basic and obvious as this sounds, <laughs> tell us how to tell them what to do. You know, when, when you say that, it reminds me of I was delivering a really big workshop. So a lot of times people think workshops I normally do, maybe 5, 10, 20 people. This was around 500 people, mm. okay? Massive uh, conference in the, in the before times when we all gathered in these big conferences. And 
one of the mistakes I made, or sorry, you're, you're, you rehearse being on stage, right? Being the yeah. guru on stage, you're delivering knowledge. I want to make sure all my communication is clear. And then it was time for the instruction. Something super basic around turning to the person next to you and having the conversation. As soon as you let people go, especially to that level of a crowd, I remember it. There was so much confusion. Wait, do I turn to my right and talk to that mm -hmm. person? Do I turn to my left? Suddenly there's a cacophony of noise happening. It's impossible to bring them back. And now you've lost the momentum that you've built. So for sure, when you think about activity instructions, I like to give that example because it's, it's magnified when you have lots and lots of people in the room. So you've lost the momentum and you've lost time because in your head, this was going to take like 30 seconds. Now everybody's talking. I'm going to yell into a microphone to get them back and totally kill the vibe in the room. Totally. The, the first thing I always think about when I do, like, uh, for activity instructions, I have a little, uh, uh, a thing in my head. I call it task tool time, hmm. triple T. What is the task? What tool am I using? How much time do I have? Right. Okay. I want our task is to bring definition to our user needs. Got it. Now I've oriented myself as the audience. Like, what are we doing? Turn to page 56 in your workbook. You're going to write down the information there, the tool. I'm going to give you three minutes as a solo activity. Oh man, that's so spot on. Because I've, when I would train people on it, I noticed people would always be vague about the time part. So they'd say like, I'm going to give you three or four minutes. But the audience just needs <laughs> The audience, it doesn't matter if it's three or four. It just needs to be one or the other, right? You, you have to be so clear here. I, I talk about what one of the modes we're talking about activity instructions is, is called cross the line. Very different when you're on stage, you're giving a speech, you're telling stories. When you're about to get into activity instruction mode, I call it, or I am crossing a line. I am no longer telling stories. I'm being really clear in activity instructions. And you want to use as few words as possible. Task tool time. It mm, just takes one good. quick sentence. Because what's going to happen is you're going to say that one sentence and everyone is going to be thinking, wait, I haven't even been paying attention in the last few minutes. What are we doing? <laughs> so another tip I like to do when I cross the line, I've been talking, telling great stories. I say, okay, if you haven't been paying attention, now is a good time to do so. Yeah. That instantly gets everybody, oh, okay, something important is about to happen. And I've been wandering in my head so I can be really clear. That's so good. Okay. So mode number one was instruction or giving clear instructions. Activity instructions. Yep. Activity instructions. You want to hear, you want, you want to know the other ones too? Yeah. Give me the other two <laughs> modes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the other one is all around your content delivery. Um, so th this is, we could talk about this later. This is less about your commanded presence. And this is literally the words you're using when you're facilitating a workshop. So this is about being a facilitator. So uh, for instance, a lot of times, one of the key one as a facilitator that's it's different than when you're just giving a speech is paraphrasing and repeating. It involves deep, active listening. Right. This, this relates to when you're hearing a group talking or somebody is giving an example, you know, especially when I, you know, I facilitate a lot of workshops in corporate environments and someone goes on and on and says something. How many times have you been in a workshop or something in a meeting and you're hearing somebody talk at nauseum and you're like, what did they just say? Mm -hmm. I don't even remember. Your job as a facilitator, paraphrase and repeat. 
I think what I heard you say is that we should shift our Q2 objectives to Q3. Did I get that right? Asking questions and paraphrasing, not just for that person, but for your group, your delivery, yeah. the words you're using, paraphrasing and repeating one of the elements of content delivery. I feel like that helps the person too. I think a lot of times that person has rambled. They're in the middle of rambling. They know they're rambling. They're desperately trying to get back to shore. You're able to, you're able to help them out. Totally, totally, totally. And, and, and I think with that, right, once again, like this is in the content delivery. These are literally the words you're using as, as a group is either going through an activity or you're giving instructions throughout. Uh, we, we say using things that, op that, that encourage openness and participation, right? Even that paraphrasing, repeating, it's like, hey, Mike, you know, you know, thanks for making that point. That's a really great point you're bringing to the group. I wonder if dot, 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 you're creating mm -hmm. this inclusive environment. I call it almost like you're, you're constantly having this, this ball that you're kind of tossing up and around and you want to, you want to keep that ball going and keep that momentum. That positivity kind of in the group is really, really needed. I mean, both these tips seem so basic. Why don't people do these? You forget. You're so worried about your presentation and your slides and, oh, do I have, you know, too many words on my slide? How mm -hmm. many slides do I have? Do I have the right content? Am I going to be seen as an imposter? There, there's so many things there that we're just not worried. We forget about the people's experience that you're talking to. Yeah. So it always goes back to experience. Not so much. Am I looking smart right now? It's not about that. That's great. You know, I, I yeah. think that's such a, that's such a big lesson. If, if I can impart anything for folks of what the role of a facilitator is, is starting to activate all these skills in yourself. Cause it's not about you anymore and it relates to leadership. So I think this is the bigger part of the shift we've seen in companies and places around command and control. That used to be the frame of leadership. I am high up. I'm going to impart and tell people what to do because I'm really smart. Yeah, yeah. And now we're in an age of leadership where it's all about coaching styles of leadership and how to activate others. Guess what? These facilitative skills are core skills for 21st century leadership, period. Hmm, that's good. So let me see if I can do it. So what you're saying is tip number two is to paraphrase and repeat back to people. <laughs> what's uh, What's delivery, or I guess it's not a tip, mode number two. What's delivery mode number three? Yeah, so th this gets all around how to moderate discussion. And I think this is a big one that folks get really, yeah. really scared about. It's like, how do I create a conversation and space for the conversation? Give me some thoughts here. Yep. It's, I, know, I know, I think for a lot of people, you get in the room, discussion starts, you're excited because that's a litmus test for you. That tells you, oh, good, someone's listening. This is great. How do I know when I should just let the other people in the room talk? How do I know when, when I should butt in? How do I know when I should say, hey, we've talked about this for too long. Let's move on to the next thing. How do I know these things? Totally. Well, I think the first thing that's really clear is knowing where you want to go with the discussion moderation. Mm. It is the goal to get a group of people to a specific learning outcome, right? That's if you're in more in a teacher mode and you want people to learn. Yeah. Or are you facilitating people to a specific work outcome, right? Oh, I want them to be discussing whether or not we should hire a designer in Q2. That's the conversation that I want to be having. Let's surface that and hear the points in the room. So I think that's step number one. Be really clear on what you're driving the discussion towards. <laughs> so you know it doesn't just get out of hand wherever people want to go. Yep. I think from there, there's just a lot of tactics. And it gets back to what I was saying about this kind of keeping this ball in the air. And, and allowing for different voices to be heard. 
And I, I think we do this in a few different ways. One of the things is what I call asking what questions, not why, not how. If you ever get stuck as a facilitator, literally just start saying the word what and see what follows. <laughs> because what that does is create openness in your group environment. So let me give you an example. If I'm here uh, discussing with Mike and a group of people and we're, I don't know, debating about hiring someone, hiring a new designer. Well, Mike, why do you want to hire a designer? When you start the word with why, it can actually feel a little bit like judgment. Yeah, I actually, I felt like I had to have a good answer. You feel like, why do you want to, why do you want to do this? Yeah. Right. And this is in our professional lives, our personal lives. If we start with the word how, right, this is more obvious, Mike, how should we go about hiring a designer? You kind of get into brainstorming mode. Oh, let me think of ideas, mm -hmm. right? You get into the solutioning, which could be appropriate. When you start with what, what about hiring a designer could be impactful for our Q2? Oh, it's, a, it's an expansive conversation and suddenly, oh, that's a great question. It, it, it creates an openness in the group. So starting with what questions? Oh, that's super good. What? What? Now I'm going to force you to do this whole I've podcast noticed, here. You've asked me one question. <laughs> no, but I've noticed, I've noticed, I did this, I did this presentation for a company last year on presenting virtual. So this is 2020, everybody's struggling. I don't know how to do this virtual thing. Like nobody knows what they're doing, right? So I noticed that a sign of insecurity is that people would get to the end of a section and they would say, any questions? But you could tell that that was, they were just asking that because they knew they were supposed to ask that. And I noticed that if you were to say, what questions do you have instead of any questions, all of a sudden people had questions for you. It just, it opened things up for people to think and speak. So that totally makes sense to me. Yeah. And it's about what, and then, and then it just starts this beautiful volleying around people, right? Where we call like, you know, you, you exhibit these different modes, whether you want to directly ask someone, okay, oh, oh, Mark, okay, that was your perspective on hiring designer. That sounds great. Mike, what about what Mark said is similar or different in your perspective? Right? You're just, you're just, you're just teasing up the conversation. Oh, interesting. Hey, we're in a group environment. Hey, let's pair up for a minute. Have a conversation about what Mark and Mike just said. What's coming up for you? But this, we could spend the whole day on what, what questions. How long do I go for? <laughs> Depends on the discussion. If you, if you are gathering a group of people together and having their time to come together, one of the most important thing is on discussion moderation. I can listen to a speech online and receive information and content. I can practice activities, but where the richness comes as a facilitator and why people leave workshops feeling so good is about the conversations that we have. Mm. So it's incredibly valuable to not skip this. You need the discussion. Well, on, on moderation, what's your opinion on calling on people, <laughs> especially, especially, I don't know. I've been in so many where there are audience of 20 people, seven people are doing all the talking. I don't know why the other 13 aren't talking, but maybe they don't want to talk. Should I be calling on them? What's your opinion? Yes. Next question. <laughs> no, it, I think it's great, right? You're, what you're getting into is we call a lot of different uh, challenging situations and behaviors, right? That you occur kind of as a, as a facilitator. Uh, yeah, absolutely, right? It, it is about reading the room, but if you're noticing one person is dominating a conversation the whole time, you, you leverage that, right? You, you, you as a facilitator are owning the experience. So you 
it, whether or not is explicit or not, that's one of the tips. You, you Folks need to grant you the authority to run the experience, right? You are the mm -hmm. facilitator. Not if you're the highest paid person in the room. It doesn't matter. I facilitate executives all the time. It doesn't matter. I'm in control of them in that room. When you're having those dominated conversations, it is absolutely your role to bring those other conversations in. So whether it's directly asking people, right? Like I just said, Mike, what do you think about it? And you'll notice if people are freezing, uncomfortable, this is where our just human behavior and verbal cues come up. Another way of doing that is saying, whatever the question might be, we're just using our example about hiring designers in Q2, jot it down. Hey everyone, let's take 30 seconds to answer this question. Gather your thoughts and write mm -hmm. it down first. Because then what that does is now you know everybody has an answer. They've already prepared it. Right. Now they just need to say what they wrote down. So that's another way when you have more introverted or people who may not feel as comfortable talking to, to lift those voices up. Uh, that's really smart. Yeah, because I know one of the things with introverts is that they do want time to have an answer, to have things written down. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, this is so yeah. Then, just on that point. I think that's really important because I think where we talk about facilitative experiences, collaboration, brainstorming, I, I feel like a lot of these words are synonymous with extroversion a lot of times. And it's just yeah. not true. It's the facilitator. It's a lot more work to deal with these different personality types in the room versus just, hey, let's talk about stuff, throw out ideas. And that just leads to the loudest person in the room. you got to curate the experience. How many times have I said experience? Are we counting it? <laughs> Drink it. <laughs> David, what if it's virtual? How does, it, how does this change on virtual? Are you still, are you calling on people when it's virtual? So th this is what I love. N none of this matters if it's virtual in mm. person, these tips, right? Great. The, uh, I, you know, I, I run a whole program called, you know, uh, kickassfacilitator.com, right? Where we teach a lot of these tips and we get that a lot. It's like, well, is this for in-person or virtual? It's like, these are fundamentals and how to show up to this experience. They're, the how is different. If I have a chat window, yeah. if I have breakout rooms. So I think for a lot of the folks listening to this and how do you activate these conversations, it is using those tips. Using Zoom, for example. All right, everyone's think about the answer to this question, write it on a piece of paper in front of you, or let's start, let's start putting in the chat window a few ideas. And then you can call on people from there. Let's get mm -hmm. into breakout rooms and then we'll come back after a minute or two. Yeah, I like that. And there's something to Kelly, I don't know why Kelly, but Kelly just wrote in the chat something. Oh, Kelly, that was an interesting response. Do you mind unmuting and explaining it to us deeper? I know that she's answered it already. So presumably there's <laughs> there's some thought that accompanied it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Or even if with those people, I think what's beautiful about virtual, you're seeing all these written words, you can activate other people to be the facilitator. So even if someone doesn't have a strong point of view on something, uh, Kelly, what are you noticing in the chat window? You're not giving your own perspective. Just help me synthesize and having those other voices. So it just, there, mm. there's so many cool things you can do with virtual uh, and, and great facilitative experiences. All right. So you talked a lot about delivery. I know design is really more of your forte. So walk us through how we can design a workshop instead of it just being a speech with a few questions interspersed. Yes. Like what else can we do? Oh my gosh. <sighs> okay. So. You're exactly right. What we've talked a lot is all about the delivery, the words we're using, how to deliver instructions, moderate conversations. Those are all great. That, that's a very front of room in our delivery, but there's a lot of work that you need to do and prepare for this experience. It's designing it, designing out this workshop. So 
I, I think a big part is all around the activities that we're choosing. So there is a slew of different techniques out there. I borrow a lot from the world of design thinking. Uh, that's the, my, my background a lot in design strategy and design thinking. There's so many different activities that we can use to activate a group. So for instance, whether or not we have people come into the room and saying, hey, uh, if we're doing a brainstorming session, there's a bunch of ideas and we put them all on the wall, or maybe there's a virtual wall. Hey, let's all do a gallery walk. Let's all take a look, spend five minutes walking through the gallery of information. What are you all noticing? That is an example of just getting people reading information and understanding content that we're bringing to a workshop. It's a really important one for a workshop. We need content to read. I think within that, that's just in reading the content, but I think you got to think about two different modes on your participants. Do you want them flaring or do you want them focusing? And there are different activities that you can activate to do that. Flaring, hey, let's do a brainstorming activity. Let's write down five ideas, right? We're flaring on content versus saying, hey, let's do a quick dot vote activity. Mm. Okay. Let's, um, there's a bunch of ideas on the wall. Uh, let's do superlative voting. Which one's the most likely to succeed, right? Or most likely to have a great customer experience or be viable for my business or feasible in Q2. Have everyone literally, whether you're in person or virtually, little colored dots and put a quick dot on an activity, on, a, on an idea. That's an example of a focusing activity. So I'm, I'm, there's, that's two, two or three examples of specific activities. But the larger point is, how do you bring these together? So you're constructing the experience of activities where you're, whether or not the group is flaring on content or focusing it on decision making. The best facilitators keep alternating between the two. Alternate between flaring and focusing. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Anything else? Well, what else should we talk about with design? You have more to say. On I always have more to say. So I think, I think another one is uh, what we call Stokes. Stokes. How do you bring the energy to a group? Okay. So once again, this is something very different than if you're just delivering a speech. How do you create the energy in a room? So Stokes are, is just language we borrow from the world of improv. And how do we have these fun games? A lot of times you see them in corporate environments. People think of them as being really silly on getting up and whatever. But it's really about pushing me and transferring my energy from a lower state to maybe a higher state that I need to be at because of the activity. So when you're thinking about activities, whether it's specific to uh, you know, an outcome you're trying to achieve or you're changing the energy state of a group, you're using this in, in, in concert along with our discussion moderation, other parts together to, to enable this great experience. So it's about putting these parts together. So like, can you give an example of what's the best version of that you've seen? So, or that you've put together? Yeah, the, I think the, the best version I've seen, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of hot starts. Um, if you know anything from any sort of storytelling, very uh, 007, put people right to the action. Uh, it's like <laughs> saying, hey, everybody, you come in and suddenly it's like, boom, all right. Everybody stand up. I want you to go uh, uh, find someone you haven't talked to lately uh, and discuss what you think their spirit animal is. You're just like, what? What is happening here? But I think doing something like that and then be like, welcome 
to this workshop or speech on blank, you've, you've, you've captured your audience. You're getting them excited about what you're about to do. And then from there, I think it depends on the outcome of what you're trying to achieve. So I think recently, right, I was just uh, facilitating a workshop for a large manufacturing client, like really just what you think of as a very stale corporate environment yeah. where manufacturing widgets we had the time of our lives. We started off listening <laughs> to salsa music, right? That set the tone. And what that did was it brought these different stakeholders across the organization that are normally used to really dry meetings to be like, oh, wow, we're talking about something different here because we were trying to redesign a certain manufacturing process. And they were excited by it. It changed their mindset and how they even came in to that given workshop. From there, and do you want me to talk through this workshop and kind of yeah, and what we did? Please. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I Give us the full yeah, picture. the full picture, you know, I, I think from there, you know, what I asked the, the participants to do in advance was like, okay, map out what your process is end to end in 10, 10 points. I put them all on a virtual whiteboard and said, here we go. Let's do a gallery walk. Everybody go through and I want you to walk through everyone's process that you, it should be all the same process. And then once again, had a bucket. What do you notice is the same and different? between everyone. It was illuminating for everyone within five minutes and with a little bit of pre-work, we got to the crux of what the change in the process needed to be, what the miscommunication was even between teammates of what we needed to do. So from there, we were off to the races saying we identified, you know, which ones we not voted on, we needed to change. And then we started brainstorming around it. So we got people to focus in their process. We got them to do a little gallery walk to open up, focus in on the dot voting, and then flared again to brainstorm on how we're going to change that process. And it was fun. Gosh, that sounds amazing. And it was fun. Well, we're having a grand old time. We're, we're moderating discussions. We're, we're diffusing all the tension of like your process versus mine. It's not. It's about what are you observing and noticing. And so, I, I, you know, you know I, I think so much around facilitation is about, you know, you know, you call it, you know, Priya Parker talks about it as the art of gathering. You're bringing these people together to just showcase this information and how we get to a great outcome together because we're better together. I mean, that sounds magnificent. I would imagine that they're still raving about that workshop. They would bring you, I don't know how big it is, but presumably they would bring you back again and again. Oh yeah. It's been, it's been what? a year and a half of workshops with them across the organization. So I'm doing something so, right. <laughs> what do you think, but what do you think that, what do you think is the biggest thing or maybe biggest couple things that where an organization wants to bring you back again? Cause I've always found it a little bit strange. I go in, I do this workshop. I know it's good. Presumably it's fun. And then there's a good chance I never talk to these people again. Uh, the company might bring me back, but the people in the room, probably not. How do I know if anything happened? How do I know if, if it mattered? Well, you need to ask them, right? Right. I mean, right. I think it's about it. I think the, the, the biggest thing with a lot of these workshops is leaving people with something to go take action on. Right. So this, this starts to blend in the world of, we've been talking a lot about facilitation, but a lot of my background in design strategy and design thinking is all about prototyping. So I think that's the lens that I specifically take around facilitation because 
doing all these things, fun activities. And to me, how do we share unfinished work as quickly as possible to other people? I think that is the crux of organizations and where people get stuck because they feel like they don't have permission to share unfinished work. So you leave a workshop, you say, great, we have some, a few ideas. Uh, what do I do with this? Do I have to get the big boss's permission? Do I, do I need to bring David back in? Cause we need to talk more about it. I'm like, no, you have a few ideas, go share it with five people. It's going to be wrong, but it's going to evolve it further. So that's my long winded way of saying is, as you're leaving these workshops and whether or not something works, I think about, is it actionable? Can you go share that with someone? Cause you're going to learn a lot more. That's good. I'm curious what, like, what, what have you seen? Mike, like, you know, you, you know, you, you've done workshops, we've done workshops together before. Like, how do you, how do you know when, when things are working? Well, I mean, the most obvious thing is someone goes out of the way to get in touch with me and tell me their, their life has changed because of the workshop and they got a 30, I, I did one time woman, I got a 33% raise. That's what she wrote to me. She said, I mean, it honestly sounds fake when I read her testimony out loud. <laughs> it's like, I got a 33% raise. And they said most of the reason why is because of how good I was at presentations. <laughs> like, oh, this does not sound real. Hmm. You know, did someone hack in? Um, those are the most obvious things. I guess the reason I ask is because the first time I ever gave a workshop, I was so weighed down by getting everything perfectly right. And I remember at, at Duarte, there was this, there was one slide in particular that talked about something called a Kolodny plate. So... There's the pronunciation, there's the expansion of what the concept was. Get through the whole day. I do do the whole thing, eight hours. I don't screw up a single slide. Get to the end and I leave people, and I see people leave and they're tired. And I had this light bulb that went off that was like, oh, they need to enjoy it. It's not just an information transfer. So. I've always felt like you learn better if it's fun. Now, there's such a thing as going too far with that, of course, and hopefully that hasn't happened. But my general thing is I'm very confident in the material. I try to make things very fun. And I try to give them a direct action step at the end. But yeah, in terms of following up, uh, that's something I suppose I could do better instead of <laughs> forcing people to seek me out. Mm. What's the optimum? Like David's going to be back in a month and answer questions? Well, at least for me and my business, the, the better outcome is like, we don't need David because we've created momentum and we're getting into action. Yeah. That's usually the usual why people bring in facilitators in the first place. We're stuck on something and we need to get into action, right? So if you've done your job, they're getting into action and maybe they've reached a new stuck thing they need to, to, to go over. That's great. But the original you know, part of whatever the workshop was, you're, you're getting them moving. But see, this is where it feels existential to me because it's like, <laughs> so a good outcome is they don't need David anymore. Yeah. Or bad outcome is David didn't do a good job. They don't need David anymore. Or a medium outcome is David did a decent job. A few people did something. We don't need David anymore. Like you just don't know unless people tell you. That's what I've concluded. Of course. Yeah. You, you have to, you have to circle back. I mean, I think that's anything of, of, you know, th this gets even when we're talking about designing uh, workshops. One of the part we didn't talk about, I talk about the, the activities and techniques, you know, having the stokes, but it's also feedback. It's actually a core part of it, even in workshops. 
gathering the feedback along the way in a workshop and afterward yeah. being like, what do you like about it? And what are you wishing for? It's not good or bad. It's just, it's just evolving it. So for sure, I mean, that gets into a larger thing of relationship management and <laughs> circling right. back, which I feel like is outside of our topic. But I think the principle applies of constantly gathering feedback. Okay. So let me go back to, let's assume I'm doing a workshop in the room, sitting there and let's assume this is corporate. Most corporate people are sitting in front of a computer and they're, they're to a certain extent, they're accustomed to being on their own schedule-ish, let's say, right? Now I'm going to sit in a room for an eight-hour workshop. I mean, I'll take breaks to get lunch and stuff, but for the most part, I'm sitting there. I don't have a computer. I'm itchy. What are some things that the facilitator can do to, to keep the person engaged throughout the day. I mean, you've mentioned some of them, Yeah. but what, what are some of your favorites? Sure. So if we're talking about in-person where you mentioned the, you know, laptops yeah. in the room. So we'll talk about as an in-person experience. Of course, it always starts before the workshop and setting the expectations of what this is, especially if you have this highly collaborative, engaged, designed workshop that you're doing. Your participants are probably are used to it. It's like, yeah, 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 someone's gonna talk to me. I can be on my laptop, half paying attention. <laughs> it's like, uh-uh, it ain't it ain't that kind of workshop, honey. Right? Like it's it's very different what we're gonna be doing. So gotta set the expectations beforehand. No laptop zone, or we'll need our laptops during this time, or we're gonna be taking a break between 12 and 1. If you have important meetings, you know, schedule it for that time if you need to catch up with folks. So it's setting the expectations of what's gonna be in the room but also giving people the permission to when they need to check in kind of with other people. So that is always number one, setting the expectations. Mm -hmm. I think from there, it's about the balancing and how much you're talking versus people are doing something. So for me, my rule of thumb, I will rarely talk for more than five minutes, maybe seven without some participant engagement. It can be a full activity that they're doing or, you know, gallery walk or getting them into action or even just a quick poll. Hey, by raise of hands, how many people have had this issue, right? Just by that act alone, you're, you're engaging with your audience. So it's like, how do you minimize the amount of time you are talking? That's right. Yeah, that's great. People who are giving speeches, it's not about you anymore. Minimize <laughs> your time talking, get rid of slides and put the ball in other people's court so they can be generating the information, not you. Yeah. That's good. That's good. What are some good, I feel like so many workshops start with icebreakers that are, Hey, I'd like to go around the room and say your name and what your job is. <laughs> like that is not an icebreaker. Oh boy. Nobody cares if you're an account manager and nobody's like, Whoa, the account manager. I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> what are, what are some better things to do? <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah. So it's once again, it's about being super intentional and why you're doing what you're doing back to the design of the activity. So for a lot of icebreakers, um, so you remind me of, you know, when I used to be, uh, internal to capital one, one of the things we do, we would do a lot of training programs, uh, uh, specifically around design thinking and how to get people learning. So these would be about 40 to 50 person workshops. Uh, and a lot of people didn't know people, corporate environment, new people, some people know each other. So uh, it was the example I was giving earlier. He said, all right, everyone, welcome to this design thinking training. I'm David, so-and-so. Here is what we were going to be doing first. You know, I love my hot starts already. We've already established this. Yeah. All right, everyone get up, find someone new who you haven't talked to and giving them a series of different ideas and how to have a quick interaction. I, I said the spirit animal. Okay, that's great. Um, it's about uh, creating a secret handshake 
I think is really, really interesting. <laughs> so it, it's funny. This one, we would do secret handshakes and you have like 30 seconds. Me and Mike would meet. We got to do a secret handshake. All right, I got to go meet someone else. I still get messages to this day. This is 10 years later. Whenever those two people see each other in the hallway, they do their secret handshake. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Amazing. So once again, the goal is about for us was about creating engagement, a light, you know, atmosphere connection, right? And so these little fun kind of silly activities is actually really powerful to create connection. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> okay. I have one more question and tell me if you've answered it already, but let's say I got brought in by a company and they tell me, Mike, I want you to help my speakers. And if I, if I really, if all I cared about was helping the speakers get better, then I would totally take a Mr. Miyagi Karate Kid approach where we would spend, let's say the first hour. And all we would do is we would practice putting a period on the end of a sentence, not saying, um, not saying, and not plowing straight ahead, but putting a period on the end of a sentence, pausing for a half second, taking a breath, starting a new sentence. And that would serve people for the rest of their lives because nobody does that. But the score is going back to LMD. Like nobody would go back to LMD saying, wow, you know what I really loved was that time where Mike made me awkwardly read this thing and then pause even though I didn't want to. Like, like the scores wouldn't be that great for that, right? Now, on the other end of the, of the spectrum, in my observation, I can really impress the audience with thought leadership, probably overwhelm them a little bit. And that might get higher scores delivered to L&D, but it's unlikely that it actually really helps someone because they walk away feeling overwhelmed. What should I be shooting for? Why isn't L&D impressed with right, simple techniques? Right. So th it, it, that's a very philosophical and specific question. The, yeah. And the reason why maybe I... I I'm asking that as a rhetorical question and then now going to answer it, right? So when I work with teams, so for instance, when I do even facilitation training, right? A lot of the things that we've been talking about and whether or not I'm brought in by a product team or L&D, other people, to me, the outcome is an increase in confidence. That is the measurement. That is what I sold in the first place and why I'm coming in. So the tactics, I, I get there, it actually doesn't matter because we're, we're driven towards the outcome and not the output of period in front of a sentence, whatever that might be. So to me, my question asking around that L&D department and the individuals, the before and after, is about their increase in confidence. Mm. So it's them trying out this new putting a period, pausing and speaking afterward. And then now the facilitator and trainer in me is like, I'm going to avail the curtain of a hundred people in a room and you got to go practice immediately within seven minutes of me telling you this, <laughs> practice it. Maybe that L and D person is in the room, right? They freak out on stage. We're rah, rah. And suddenly they have a momentum that their, their confidence is better and they have places to practice in the organization. So I think to me, it's just being deliberate about that outcome and how do you get people practicing right away? So you think I should do the, the sim this is obviously hypothetical, but you think I should do the simpler one, force change and ask a better question that shows the difference between before and after. 
Am I hearing yeah, that correct? It's all about outcomes. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, because actually, yeah, it strikes, I mean, I was making up that scenario, but it strikes me that one of the things that you can do to make that more effective is remind the audience of where they started and then the ending point of pausing, even though it was, it might feel like a slower workshop, the, the ending point is more powerful. Ah, that's money. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There we go. Well done, my friend. I'm glad we had this talk. Uh, David, we always end with, well, these might be a little different for you, but we always end with two questions. The first of these is a speaking tip from David. So something that you would not necessarily find in a public speaking book or a public speaking manual. What's, what's a speaking tip you would give to people? You know, a speaking tip, and this relates to being in person, that I learned from one of my mentors and one of the organizations I worked for. We're delivering these workshops and you're front of stage. It's actually related to what you were mentioning about a lot of filler words, the ums, the ands, the rights. I do them naturally. It's about bringing awareness to it and holding on to a ball or a squishy ball. When I'm on stage, I hold that in my hand. And if I hear myself saying, um, like, right, I just squeeze my hand and squeeze the ball because that just brings the awareness. Most people don't even realize their speech and a lot of those filler words. And that is a, almost a physical cue to just remind myself of when I'm saying those words. So I love that tip. So you're saying when you, re when you rehearse, right? No, when I'm delivering. Well, Wait a minute. So I bring a physical ball with me, but when I'm delivering in the front of a room. I've got a physical ball with me. Everybody's like, why has he got a squishy basketball in his hand? Yep. And you, you just do that. I just do that. Right. You have to figure out the right context for yourself and how important your the, the stage present is. But absolutely. I've done, especially in training environments where once again, if I'm facilitating something and I'm generally the energy I'm putting back onto the group to do activities and I'm not just sage on stage, I will absolutely hold onto a little squishy ball to bring the awareness of the filler words. Got it. Got it. Interesting. <laughs> that's a great rehearsal tip. I don't know. Well, that's your tip. So we get to, that's, that's we get to my tip. tip. All right, last thing is we always end with a story. So this can be a story you've told from stage. This can be a story that's not from stage. Any sort of story. What is your story, sir? I think my story get back, gets back to like getting into action and confidence building. And it relates to my own failure of not getting into Stanford for grad school. So this mm. is back, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, I was applying to grad school at Stanford in their product design program because I wanted to do more design thinking work. And to me, I was very, what I call black and white thinking. The only way that I can practice this design thinking work is if I go to grad school at the best possible place to do it. I applied. It was a incredibly arduous year of applying. I would go to a, a, uh, a wine bar every night and drink and create my portfolio and tap into creativity. And I made it as a finalist, the top 10 people for this program. And they only accepted six people. I did not get in. And it crushed me. Because I thought to myself, I will never do design thinking 
because I got rejected from this program. I had a follow-up call with uh, Banny Banerjee, who was the then head of the program. He was kind enough to, hey, why didn't I get in? What could I do better? And what he told me at the time I was living in DC area, and I told him, you know, design doesn't really exist here, right? I know it. I don't have people here. The only way I can do this is, is if I go to, to Stanford. And he told me, David, it exists around you. You just have to look for it and you just have to start practicing from where you are. And it was his very sage advice. And he was like, okay, I got to go. Bye. Click. And it's like, what do I do with this? <laughs> right? It doesn't exist. But as soon as I started to shift my own mindset and realize I can practice from where I am, it launched my career in a whole new way. And hey, now I, now I teach design thinking to other people inside of organizations. So my story relates to even for you all out there and how you can start practicing being a facilitator, practicing these tips. It's starting from where you are. I love it so much that it's just a quick phone call. Gotta go. I can picture that whole thing. It's so good. Uh, David, this has been so great and so helpful. And I just think of how many people are putting workshops together and they're going to benefit from this. But if they want to know more, if they want to hire you, any of those things, where would where would they find more about you? Yeah. So I would recommend going to uh, my company, lemusand.co. I just rebranded. So it's very exciting. It's a lot of work I need to do on my website, but lemusand, L-E-M-U-S-A-N-D.co. Excellent. David, so good, my friend. Thank you so much. Good to chat with you. The Best Speech Podcast is happy to have had David on the show. He's so good at workshops. Look him up, check him out, bring him into your company. The Best Speech Podcast is hosted by me, Mike Pacchione, produced and edited by Alicia Otieno. And the music you're hearing is from Jonah Ramey. Be sure to check us out, bestspeech.co. And until next time, friends, do good things out there. <laughs>